Welcome to Built to Play, your dose of video game news and culture. I'm Omnic Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, YouTube gets twitchy, and we continue calling the blows on the battle between ZeniMax and Oculus. Also, your game consoles are probably costing you a fortune you didn't know about. Plus, we talk to Toronto Top Tier's Russell Ordona about organizing a fighting game tournament, and Evil Genius's Justin Wong about EVO 2014. And we chat with one of the top fan translators, Demi Force, about his radical dream. But first... Google is an ever-growing katamari of everything you hold dear. Including uh, video game live streams now. So according to reports from all over the place, YouTube, owned by Google, is in talks to buy Twitch.tv, the very, very popular uh, video game live stream platform. It's, uh, neither company has confirmed it's basically been in the works. Some people have said that it's earlier in the process than others. Um, when it, when the news first broke out, it was they, it, they said the deal would be imminent, but it's clear that they're still working on some stuff. Um, the, uh, the Wall Street Journal recently said that Twitch is looking into alternate methods of fundraising and deciding before just selling the service to someone. Um, and according to The Verge, they were courting bids from Microsoft and venture capitalists, among unnamed others, before deciding on YouTube as the company that would best make Twitch their definitive game streaming service. And the first reports from Variety indicated that the deal is $1 billion in cash, not stocks, not equity, just cash money. I guess just a big suitcase they would bring over, like the thing from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> just shining gold. Yeah, it's just this giant briefcase that says don't be evil on the yeah. front. Yeah. It, it says don't be evil on the front, and on the back it just says ha-ha. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you. But the problem with this is uh, antitrust. So Twitch <laughs> is apparently preparing itself for a U.S. government uh, regulators who may raise concerns about YouTube monopolizing live stream, which I think is a fairly... Fairly useful concern, considering that YouTube, I think, is 90% of all live streaming content. Yeah, even though YouTube's live streaming isn't really the best service in the world, between them and Twitch, pretty much they cover everything that isn't like... Does Justin TV even still exist? Justin TV is still a thing. doesn't do much. Ustream um, exists, but it's not particularly used. Unless you're, like, on PlayStation. Yeah. Where, where apparently that's the default. Um the there was one other that I can't remember, but yeah, uh, it, obviously it doesn't matter yeah. that much. But yeah, any, in any case, there have there been a lot of live streaming services, and there have been a lot of video streaming services. But if you're looking to get video from somewhere, you're probably going to get it from YouTube. Probably from YouTube, and if you're looking to get video game specifically, video game specific content, it's either YouTube or Twitch. Yeah. they pretty much house a hundred percent of of the internet's video game video content. Um, now, Twitch is a... It's not that old a company. It came out first in 2011? Yeah, from Justin TV's co-founders, Justin Kahn and Emma Cheer, which I didn't realize that Justin TV was literally named after a guy named Justin, and he just bought Justin.TV. <laughs> well, apparently, I, if, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, Justin um, TV was originally um, a camera that hung out on Justin Kahn's back and f- um, filmed his entire life. Yeah. Mm. Which, I mean, that sort of makes sense. But now it just sort of feels like your name is Justin and this is Justin TV. Um, they founded Twitch to focus on video game and esports live streams. They now boast 45 million viewer visitors a month and uh, cl- now say they, they've recently broke 1 million broadcasters, probably helped out by the whole Twitch functionality built right into Xbox One and PS4. Yeah, so those things, um, the broadcasters is a bit of a weird definition because it's they basically mean users. They don't necessarily mean Yeah, like... they mean people who have signed up for an account. Yeah, yeah. So that maybe don't take that as everyone who's necessarily ever broadcast a video, but still a lot of people. It's still a lot of people who've signed up. Um, the now, 
right now, Twitch is likely negotiating how impendent they'll be um, and whether they'll get just folded to YouTube, which I think would be the worst outcome. I definitely yeah. don't want to see Twitch just become part of YouTube. Right. And I think at that point, it would just be YouTube. Like, they're basically buying their technology for a billion dollars and just shunting the brand. Yeah. The big problem with a lot of Google purchases, and this is a lot of a case in, uh, I mean, it could have been worse. It could have been bought by Apple. But a lot of the, the case um, with these companies is that they buy up these companies for talent. And then some of the technology. So in this case, they'd be getting for a little more sophisticated live streaming service than YouTube has right now, which isn't great. And a um, back end that functions exactly right. So by comparison, that's and if that happens, then you lose all the Twitch community, which you right. don't want because that's kind of what makes that thing continuously successful. Um, there are some other sticking points. YouTube and Twitch have really different approaches to copyrighted material. Uh, Twitch actually takes no responsibility for anything streamed on their service uh, under the DMCA. So long as it's game-related or related video, uh, all they ask is that copyright holders kind of take action in protecting their content, and then Twitch will act upon their behalf. Yeah, the the it's a, the opposite of how Content ID works, which is basically that Content ID says, hey, did you copy break something that's uh, copyrighted? Okay, you've lost the access to that service. The... Um, but it's instead of it basically it allows people to not be marked as copyright fiends from the moment they sign up. Yeah, which is especially helpful when you are streaming video games. Yeah, with these and these publishers are very overzealous about their copyrights oftentimes. And it's 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 coming to even weird situations on YouTube where things like um, people who have licensed the music for a particular. Um, that have in that were that was in a certain game. So when that for some reason that song played during a, a let's play, all of a sudden um, this song has now been uh, this song this video gets kicked out because whoever licensed that song um, set up Constant ID to just get rid of all these songs. Yeah, um, I can't imagine a Guitar Hero let's play would ever spy yeah, right? on YouTube. Not that I would want to watch a Guitar Hero let's play, but you know. <laughs> um, yeah, YouTube's content ID system just kind of basically pre-acts and just like, if your thing falls under any of these ID tags, your video is taken down and the uploader is notified and given a chance to argue their case. Though people have often said that these companies aren't really responsive and the process is by no means intuitive or open. Uh, companies can also actually request a copyright strike and have every video just blanket wide that has any words they're looking for completely be taken down. And one of the scary parts is also that uh, if you get enough demerit points for doing this, um, you lose all revenue that you can make from those videos. Yeah. So it, if you are actually making money from Twitch or from YouTube um, content and they get integrated, you would actually lose all this revenue. Exactly. Which is which is interesting because it's not only that you lose revenue, the revenue is turned to the um, to the copyright holder until you settle the dispute. And considering the dispute is so hard to settle, it's they're just making money off of your content. It's not that the money goes nowhere. YouTube doesn't get it. The people who don't have any right to what you have been, you know, qu uh, supposedly infringing on are getting that cash. And, like, that's that's crazy because you you got to think, like, as a guy who's fighting this, right, you, you, um, you need money in order to kind of stay stable and be able to make the claim that your work is not copyright infringing. And with them not even get with them not even getting the money, they're literally making money off of your. Um, these companies are literally making money off of the fact that you are now becoming slowly destitute from these videos. Yeah, and and the people who produce let's plays and reviews and stuff like that were often part of multi-channel networks, like stuff like Machinima and Maker. You know, the stuff like like people like PewDiePie. 
those people were off were un, under an old policy of YouTube's exempt from content ID bots. They figured that those networks would be able to police their own content. Yeah. Uh, YouTube recently went back on that as of last year, uh, and now nothing is exempt from the copyright bots. And these things that are actual people's real livelihoods, not just secondary sources of income, are just being stripped away without any warning. Yeah, it sucks. It really sucks. The um, one of the things. Uh, that comes out comes out of this is that people who are involved in these networks, the networks make the bulk of the money, but um, they're the ones who are, are going to suffer. And there are kind of the equivalents of that on Twitch. Um, and it would really suck if that <laughs> then gets submitted to this kind of so draconian service. Especially because, like we saw with the PS4 live streaming stuff, people are really touchy about live streaming games. Yeah. Especially yeah. these companies. I think there, there are some games you can't even live stream when you saw Ubisoft watermarking things. Yeah. It's these are other people's original content. Technically, when you're dealing with a let's play or a live stream, seeing a, I could definitely see a charity live stream being taken down because of this, and that's just gross. Yeah, like the the thing that they always harp on is that whether this is a transformative work or not. So the difference with what you can do um, as a as someone who's trying to make content. You can work off of someone else's work if it's copyrighted, so long as it's transformative. Transformative meaning that your work has, has either critiques or elaborates or comments on the original in the way that is constructive. Um, so, for instance, uh, a review that uses some of the original content that a a let's play, for example, often yeah. is is now seen as falling under this, and that you know you are commentating on the game, discussing the game. Um, the stuff that's illegal is derivative work, which is just straight up like stealing content. Right, which again doesn't really work necessarily in these cases with games because you're not playing a game by watching it. Yeah, like the weird thing about games is that you need a player, right? Like you can't, it's like having, um, it's like a play with no audience. If you go to, just because you can't, just because these people are on stage doesn't necessarily mean that there is a play going on. Exactly. Like, I under, like yes, live streaming an entire movie, putting a, sticking an entire movie on YouTube, yeah, that's copyright infringement. Yeah. But... I played this game in a certain way that would not be replicated, not necessarily replicated by anyone else. Right. And, and, and the thing that gets me is like, and Capcom is not the company that does this, but I could like Street Fighter matches, like those yeah. being, those just being from tournaments and stuff, like who is to say that it, like that is just a stream of the game. It's yeah. absolutely meaningless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like to, to be fair, I think that Capcom would be crazy to, to stop live streaming considering that, that how much of a force live streaming fighting games Exactly, but that's exactly what, say, Nintendo was doing with yeah. Smash Bros. where they have to give specific permission to Evo to live stream uh, Super Smash Bros., which is crazy. Yeah, that would be really dumb. That because, would be really, really dumb. Because, again, watching a video game is not playing, I don't know, this, this whole thing is dangerous both companies have copyright problems and monetization problems that people said before it's yep. really hard to make money off of twitch it's also like twitch has its own issues and that the video streaming has never been great all that consistent the quality's just not up there and the chat was broken for quite a while yeah um and it's at one point during the twitch plays pokemon thing it was just like the whole thing was they were not prepared to take that many people in, in a chat service or on the network in general so it clearly has its own issues although expansion is probably what twitch is thinking about when being purchased right how do you be the way that you handle that crowd for twitch plays pokemon is that you buy more servers and the way a you billion buy dollars does that yeah yeah and i mean the fact that almost all of gaming's original video content is carried between these two services. Yeah. Really, like, YouTube is not ignoring the fact that games, like, games people are the people who are making money on YouTube. I mean, but one of the top uh, companies that are making money off of YouTube right now are games. Yeah, Maker and Machinima. Yeah. And they're huge, you know, comparatively for other things on YouTube. 
I, I definitely feel like this is, I don't know if it's a specific monopolization attempt, yeah. but it's definitely them just saying like, okay, we can own 100% of internet gaming video. Yeah. I mean, the only thing left, if they if they get Twitch, the only thing left of diverse kind of content would be rap videos, which show up on Vimeo because Vimeo allows nudity. Right. The, um, if, uh, aside from this, that would then just be, that would... These other video services are already niche markets. This would only increase the case. And, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that this would all in all be a bad deal, but I, I'm just uh, worried about it's, it. It's worrying, definitely. And, yeah, I, I just, I, again, I don't like it. Yeah. I don't like it. Google, I'm usually okay with Google, but recently they've been a little bit shadier. And, and definitely the kind of stuff that Twitch would need doesn't necessarily come from the kind of stuff that YouTube does. Yeah. Speaking of worrying things. <laughs> it looks like, so speaking, it looks like that um, the punch that Oculus threw back at Zenimax has been roundhouse kicked right into their stomach as they've, Zenimax is now suing Oculus for copyright infringement or, well... A million I, things, actually. Yeah, yeah. They're suing them for a lot of things. Um, so if you've been following the last couple of weeks, uh, Zenimax, the owners of id Software and former employees of John Carmack, have been sniping at Oculus, the makers of the Rift VR headset and current employers of John Carmack, because they believe that when Carmack left the company, he took code that he wrote while at Zenimax to Oculus, and they believe they own that code and thus should own a stake in Oculus. So Oculus has been fired back by asking Zenimax to point to any stolen code in the um, in the open source SDK, because all the Oculus code is in fact available online. So their point is, hey, look, if there is code that you think was stolen, just point to it with your finger and... Uh, we'll we'll deal with it then. Which we called a really ballsy move last week because it really did seem like it was an airtight defense. But turns out it's not airtight enough that Zenimax backed off. So now they're actually suing um, the company. And now they allege it's not just Carmack, but a half dozen of former Zenimax employees who jumped ship with him but stole code as well as research concepts they were working on for years. In their suit, they say Oculus is benefiting from millions of dollars in research Zenimax made into VR tech. And instead of accepting a business deal for a 2% equity stake in their company, Oculus began poaching employees. Uh, Oculus, of course, maintains their stance that it's all out of crock and say that they'll defend themselves vigorously. But there's the thing that gets me with this is that it, it very much seems like Lucky's defense last week of this being an open source code. Anybody can look at it. They're saying that's not the issue. Yeah, no. It's which is bizarre. Um, Palmer, I mean, they've implicated Palmer Lucky in this as well, the Oculus CEO. Um, they've, but here's how the story goes. Here's how what we what we know of in 2002, a college 2012. age, 2012, a college age Lucky Palmer Lucky um, was look at, working on a early prototype of the Rift and met Carmack, who along with other Zenimax employees added the head mount, integrated motion sensors, and other critical software, as well as modified Doom BFG edition to run on the Rift. Then at E3, Zenimax showed Lucky this new prototype while under NDA, as well as demoing it on the show floor to key press members and developers. Uh, Lucky, who Lucky then went on to found Oculus and asked Zenimax to help promote the Kickstarter for back in 2012. They asked him not to use any Zenimax materials in his pitch, but he advertised with Doom 3. Zenimax also says that Lucky asked for information about the hardware Zenimax used to build the prototypes and then directions on how to install custom firmware on them, that being that open source code that he was talking about. Right, so it wasn't necessarily any line of code, but a general guidelines on how to do it, I guess? Ideas and hardware. Yeah. Uh, they then claimed that discussions of how Oculus would be would be would be compensating Zenimax for this work fell apart in winter 2012 when Oculus began hiring new talent and Lucky started ignoring them. 
According to the lawsuit, after negotiations fell apart, Carmack and other employees were asked not to continue sharing information with uh, Lucky until an agreement could be agreed upon. They were then hired by Oculus. Cinemax complaints end by listing all of their accounts of misconduct, including common law misappropriation of trade secrets, copyright infringement against all defendants pertaining to Oculus's use of Doom 3 BFG without permission, breach of contract against all defendants encompassing uh, Lucky's use and disclosure of proprietary information under NDA, unfair competition against Oculus uh, because Oculus breached the terms of the NDA, took ZeniMax's property, and used it for its own gain without obtaining license, unjust enrichment against all defendants who refused to compensate ZeniMax for its contributions, trademark infringement for Oculus' use of trademark materials including Doom, Rage, and Skyrim, and false designation against all defendants because Oculus VR's products are likely to imply the mistaken belief that they come from or are authorized by ZeniMax. That is a pretty serious list of accusations. Yeah. So two weeks ago, Carmack in, in, you know, tweeted that Oculus has not used a single line of code that he wrote while he was under contract to ZeniMax. And Lucky's statement to ZeniMax to look through their code again seemed pretty ballsy. But I don't think they care about the code so much as they care about everything else about Oculus. Yeah. So what it, what this basically turns out was that ZeniMax is angry not so much that um, they may have stole any direct code so much as... Palmer Lucky may have gained kind of an advantage by being exposed to some of ZeniMax's inner workings at one point. Yeah, the idea that just ZeniMax employees worked for months on VR after Carmack met Lucky, and then he took all that work, and instead of paying Oculus, for, paying ZeniMax for it, or giving them some sort of stake in his company, he just hired those employees and pretended they didn't exist. Yeah, so it's a really, really weird arrangement. Like, because you got to consider the a lot of the. Um, breach of a lot of the things they're suing for is basically just ideas in John Carmack's head that never were were never put into anything marketable or something that came out as a product. Yeah, nothing the, official, nothing that again Zenimax had any like this is a design document for the Oculus Rift. And it didn't look like it as as Carmack has said in the past, they were abandoned their projects for 3D. Yeah. They weren't going to go through with this. They this was an experiment that failed. And apparently, like this is the, the like this has been something that Carmack has been complaining about for a long time when he was working on his own VR headset. Right, and I mean, you have to wonder who's in the right here because nothing really was stopping Carmack from leaving Oculus. His contract wasn't, you know, he was not in breach of contract for being hired by another company, you no. know, for quitting and and leaving the company, and. Like, how much of Lucky's side of the story are we missing? Because yeah. I really feel like, yes, this is pretty damning evidence, but at the same time, like, this is one side of the story, and there's got to be a reason for all this. Yeah, no, it's incredibly bizarre to some extent, because it feels like, like if this is true, they're basically accusing uh, Palmer Lucky of corporate espionage. Right. Or something akin to por- corporate espionage. Which, like, you would need to be kind of either super negligent or super evil to do. Yeah, like, I can't... A lot of this just seems, like... See, how I'm envisioning it was a lot of like they these were two guys who were working on basically a very similar project and they hung out with each other and shared ideas yeah in the same room and they're alleging that they that they owned this guy and he knew a whole bunch of proprietary NDA stuff and then talked with this other guy who made a VR headset and eventually and because of that it the there was a go ahead but one thing I think they might actually have a point with is the Stuff of the BFG edition, yeah. which apparently like they did use without going through Xenomax, right? And and they they didn't authorize any use of it. They, I believe the the official thing in the lawsuit is that they they allow they Xenomax said we would help they would help with the Kickstarter as long as no Xenomax games were like officially stated to be for the Oculus Rift. Yeah, and beca- and 
because of the BFG edition and because that thing got abandoned, it was super bizarre. Um, they they're now alleging copyright uh, infringement, and I like that seems like that's okay. That was his probably his bad. Yeah, the, I don't know what happened there. Um, and I don't think that's that seems like something we may never know. Really. Yeah, there, it sounds like there's a lot of spite on both sides here. Yeah. Um, and I have to wonder how much of this is because of all that Facebook cash. Yeah. Like, to be fair, f- this is literally what happened to Facebook, by the yeah. way. Like, this is straight up um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg went to another guy, talked to them about an idea for a potential social network, and, and then, then made, made, his own. That social, made that social network. This is a guy who was kind of working on a product, talked to a guy who was making a VR headset, and then made a VR headset. So, oh. well, it, it, well, talked to a guy who made a VR set, head, headset, gave him that VR headset, and then said, well, what if I install new stuff on this VR headset, yeah. apparently? Yeah, yeah. And I, th- I find this... I mean, this is pretty weird that, yeah. that how closely this matches up to just I, Facebook is probably going to fight this. I think like I think that Facebook has both the money and the wherewithal. The, like they yeah. want to fight this. This just like Mark Zuckerberg has been through multiple versions of this trial already <laughs> with the Winklevoss tri- twins. Yeah. So I think he has he's going to come down straight up on the side of Oculus saying, hey, no, look, if you like what, what is the line from the movie The Social Network? If you had invented Oculus, if, you would have invented, invented Oculus. Oculus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know who's gonna play uh, John Carmack in the Social Network version of this? Uh, oh my god, I would be so excited actually for an Oculus. I think movie. Jeremy Irons would be pretty good. Yeah, because I feel like I feel like these guys are actually like, really interesting folks, and we'll we'll, we'll eventually find out um, what's going on here. There are just elements though that right now are completely mystifying. Oh yeah, like who's gonna play Duke Nukem in the movie? <laughs> Duke Nukem helped. He was one of those employees. They hired Duke Nukem away. That was part of the Duke Nukem copyright issue with Gearbox and stuff. It's really confusing. Speaking of conversations I'm running away from, um, (laughs) (laughs) did you leave your Xbox running? Because that's a terrible, terrible idea. Yes. According to a report from the National Resources Defense Council, 40% of of power usage from next-gen consoles happens while they're in standby mode. Um, This is the... (laughs) <laughs> the NRDC's last report on game console since 2008, where they found America's P360s, PS3s, and Wii's consumed 16 billion kilowatt hours per year and enough to power San Diego. Which is a weird city to choose, <laughs> but sure. Yeah, I mean, San Diego during Comic-Con or just San Diego generally? I think it's just San Diego at, like year-round. That is how much power San Diego takes. I think 10 billion of that is during Comic-Con. Yeah, yeah. That's... You need listen. You need to power Stanley somehow. <laughs> the battery that keeps him running is made of human kryptonite. In any case, <laughs> the um, the the report suggests that if every console was replaced by its next gen counterpart, they would use 10 billion kilowatt hours per year, enough to power Houston. The drop is mostly because Wii U consumes far less power than the Wii while in standby. Um, sure, why not? The Wii the Wii U actually has a light that tells you when a disc is in the system whether the console is on or off, which I have to assume consumes a billion kilowatt hours by itself. <laughs> But sure. Um, the Xbox One, however, uses 44% of its total energy use, usage while in standby mode, likely due to the Kinect being always on, always watching, always listening. I mean, that was yeah, probably going to go down now. That's one advantage, I guess, of having a Kinectless Xbox One coming out. It won't, it won't cost you a bunch of money in the long run. Yeah, yeah. Um, the NRDC is a nonprofit environmental advocacy group, so it's not like their motivations are super shady here. But it is surprising that consoles use m- that much energy in standby mode for features we mostly don't care about. Yeah, there's pretty much nothing they do in standby mode other than the PS4 like patching stuff in the background. And what was... But why, I don't know how true this is, but remember at one point they were advocating that like... The 
the PS4 would track the games that you're interested in and download games that you might be interested in prematurely. Yeah, I think that's not existing. I think that's a thing they made up. Yeah, I, I remember that being as like as that being super crazy at the time. But if they're actually doing that in standby mode, that might explain it. Things yeah, that would eat a ton of your that would eat a, a ton of your energy. These that's the thing though about this is that like these machines already cost four hundred dollars. Yeah, and now they're costing a ton of money just to power them and plug in. I mean, I don't know. It'd be nice to know how much of this compares to like having a refri- an extra refrigerator in your house. Like, what what would this be? What would be this? Be, what appliance that you could actually use to you know like help your life? This be the equivalent of? Yeah. Oh man. Well, at the very least, and now that you don't have to have your Kinect plugged in spying on you, here's basically what we learned today: is that spy cameras <laughs> eat up a ton of your money, both up front and for years and years to come. There you go. There you go. We did a. We all learned an important lesson today. And that's it for our normal round of news, but we have a bonus round. A totally tubular bonus round. So just to give you a heads up, a bonus round is a collection of weird bits of news that don't really make a lot of sense, but we've collected anyway. Um, Daniel, what's our first one this week? Our first piece of news this week comes from our uh, intrepid mouse reporter, Chuck E. Cheese, who you may know from a series of 90s arcade pizza places that were mostly terrible and also actually function as adult torture stores. I believe uh, the common kind comedy joke is that it's the place where step-parents go to die. Um, <laughs> um, visitors to Chuck E. Cheese now will be able to play the Virtual Ticket Blaster experience, which lets kids grab virtual tickets for fabulous prizes like pencil erasers or a skateboard that costs more tickets than actual money. But the exciting thing about this is that they'll be playing these on Oculus Rifts. Wow. that's So That's they're going to have um, basically... When they plan to implement this at all? Uh, they're planning. This is going to be starting in a few months, I believe, for a six-week trial period. I believe in Texas. I don't remember exactly. The game was developed exclusively for Chuck E. Cheese by the studio that recently uh, redesigned their mascot, and it will be. Um, it that will mascot be is terrifying. By it the way. is horrifying. It's the most terrible design I've ever seen in my life. It'll be over for a six-week trial period before decide decide how to best put expensive, fragile VR equipment in the hands of terrible, hyperactive children who are eating garbage pizza. Also, like. Let's let's talk about one problem with VR. Um, that stuff is gross in terms of just like hygiene. Like these are people with these are kids who have touched their butts and are going to be rubbing them on the lenses. That's how you get pink eye, man. Yeah, that's going to be real. That's a going to be nasty, and B, man, when you get the kid who gets nauseous by that, oh. that is going to be a horrifying room. That is going to be a room you painted green <laughs> and not on purpose. Yeah, well, so let's see how this six-week trial runs, I guess. Okay, so what's the other thing that we've got going here? The other thing is that, do you remember Night Trap? Um, that was a FMV game from the mid-90s? Yes, for the Sega CD. Uh, the creator is threatening to bring it back. Oh, my God. So the U.S. Senate's favorite Sega CD game is coming back with a vengeance, according to J- creator James Riley, who was posting on the private Night Trap Facebook page, which, by the way, <laughs> let's stop for a moment and appreciate how beautiful that sentence is. <laughs> let's just appreciate the fact that there is a private night. You have to be invited to the <laughs> Night Trap Facebook page. No fair weather fans allowed. So just the um 
<laughs> Night Trap has a fun, a really cool history, including that includes the foundation of the ERCRB for some reason. Yeah, so back in the 90s, video game violence was a really big deal. I mean, it still is to an extent now, but to the point where the U.S. Senate called a hearing on game violence, where Nintendo and Sega both argued their cases, and Sega was already sort of rating their games. They had kind of developed what would become the ESRB internally, and Nintendo's Howard Lincoln, who was the uh, their lawyer at the time and later, I think at the, also at the time he was also partially their CEO or president or something, yeah. he, he rose to a management position. You may know him as a comic character in Nintendo Power Comics, um, <laughs> or the man who played every NES game in existence. He basically said that... Sega was letting children play games like Night Trap, which had nudity and horrible violence in it. It didn't. It doesn't. It's a bad game, but not for those reasons. And uh, Sega didn't really have a leg to stand on because all they could say was, no, it doesn't. And the Senate didn't really want to play these games anyway. (laughs) So the Senate said, you guys need to get your act together. Make the ESRB. (laughs) (laughs) And so Night Trap is uh, indirectly responsible for the creation of the ESRB. It also ruined the career of one Dana Plato. Oh, good. Who you may remember from sitcoms in the 90s and nothing else now. Uh, It inspired, like I mentioned, Howard Lincoln to lie to the government. Um, And, again, has a private Facebook page, which is actually the saddest part of this whole story. (laughs) Riley says he has been speaking to interested parties. He is now looking at what platforms to bring it back to. Uh, May I recommend, just to dovetail failure and failure, the Ouya. (laughs) That would actually be the perfect place for it, wouldn't it? Yeah, I believe the Ouya could be the new home of FMV games. Listen, everybody needs a niche. Just just for those who, who don't know and haven't had the experience of the suffering, an FMV game is a full motion video game with human people. Yeah, well, acting in film scenes, in really low quality film scenes, because they have to run off a 90 CD-ROM that doesn't even have a, cu- a couple hundred megabytes on it, and you will occasionally hit a button to do nothing. Yes, um, these but these uh, these games once had Christopher Walken in them. They were that popular. There was um, oh gosh, what is that that comedian's name? Canadian comedian. He was in like SCTV. Um, oh, uh, you're t- was he in Kids in the Hall? I, I no, he wasn't. He was uh, in. Doesn't matter. Hmm. I don't remember. No, you know what? Okay, here's more important. There was a Shelley Duvall golf game, <laughs> which is the most important <laughs> FMV game I, I believe in existence. There was a game called Plumbers Don't Wear Ties, which I insist is a gritty reboot of Mario that never took off. <laughs> it was for the 3DO. I think Nintendo was doing it in secret. That guy's also threatening, by the way, to re-release that game. <laughs> okay. Well, if um, I guess this that's okay. Dueling Firemen. That's another great one. It's about fire. It's about firemen who dance at each other. That that one never came out, but he did release the whole thing on DVD. At least, well, you know what? At least we know the dystopian future that um, really, awaits us all. That awaits us all, and um, I just wonder what Night Trap will do for us this time. <laughs> what great, yeah, what great strides in innovation! I believe Night Trap is what's going to make going to put VR on the map. <laughs> I can feel like it's. I can feel like Data Plate was right in front of me. Oh, she no, really, that is her. She works at the supermarket now. <laughs> oh. And that's it for news. Before we get into our big stuff this week, let's wrap up the Bit Bizarre. Let's start with N++. This is the second sequel to the original game, N. In N, the original game for Adobe Flash, you play as a ninja with a really low metabolism. So you have to get a lot of gold to satisfy his hunger. It's basically a platform, and it's one that designers have now worked on for nearly a decade. We've, like with level design, we've hit walls where we're like, okay... We can't make another level. Like, we're out of ideas. But, and then we, like, come up with some kind of new thing. Like, so it's, it's been, like, really, really rewarding and, like, challenging to, like, keep, keep pushing things. Uh, but also, 
we added a bunch of new enemies, so we kind of cheated because like that made it a lot easier too. There are all, all these new things to do in terms of the level design. But I don't know. It's definitely. It feels good at this point. About a year ago, it was a bit stressful. Yeah. But now that it's come together, it's good because we kind of just were, I mean, you can tell from the game, we're kind of perfectionists and we like that it's kind of paralleled. The development in the game are parallel where it's like, it's about doing it again and getting better and uh, improving. And so I, hopefully we, we nailed this one. Yeah, I mean, we were hoping to make this the last version of N and the best version. So the idea was just to kind of make sure that everything is perfect and that, you know, we're working with the people that we really wanted to work with forever and the graphics are exactly how we always envisioned them. And so it's it's really, it's been interesting to see how our collaborators, like Sean, um, who made Daya, he made the engine for that N++ is running in, and um, Massa, who did, is a graphic designer and did some of the um, concept for the graphics, it's nice to see how their input changes our vision a little bit. You know, like we know what we want, but they add this extra little something that makes it even better than we could have thought. So it's, yeah, I, I really love the way it's coming together, basically. Was, was were, Is there stuff that you wanted to add to the game for years that you're finding you can finally kind of get put in? Yeah, I mean, for one thing, I've always wanted to put the evil ninja in the game, and uh, we finally, finally managed to do that. It's my favorite of the new entities. It's really, it's just psychologically terrifying. Yeah, that's a good example. That's what I thought of, too, like the evil ninja. Because, like, we thought of it in 2008 when we saw Cursor Times 10 at the Experimental Gameplay Workshop, which is, like, it's a game where you move your cursor and then it just it's the same idea as the evil ninjas where it's like echoes of your previous actions continue and then in that game you have to cooperate with yourself in this game you have to avoid your previous selves but it's the same like anyways it's the same idea and it took us several years to actually have a good opportunity to like put it in the game finally but yeah it was awesome when it when it worked and we were like oh this is so cool like, um and i mean is there? I've been wondering, looking around, just demoing gameplay. Is there something to seeing people play the game and kind of learning about how people play that changes, kind of goes into changing design? Um, I mean, seeing people play it is absolutely one of the best things ever because, well, you do get a lot of feedback on which levels are a little bit too hard or which levels are maybe not as fun as some of the other levels, but just watching people come back again or to you know they they've died 35 times on one level but they're still playing is amazing it, it just makes our jobs as level designers really satisfying and and enjoyable um but yeah i mean we because you kind of you get really close to the game when you're developing it and you you lose the sense of what it's like to experience it for the first time like we're way too good at it now so it's great to get people who've never played it before to try it so that we can see you know what they like or what i mean we often find that the level order is way too hard so we go back and we make some easier levels and we put those in but yeah lots of really good feedback from people Mayor Shepard and Reagan Burns are designers on N++, to do out on PlayStation 4 later this year.
talked to one last person at the Bit Bazaar, and what first caught our eye was his blue t-shirt. In big black letters, it said, John Remedios is a narcissist. I'm really nervous about, like, about putting stuff out in front of people. Um, so I thought a good way to combat that is, like, well, if I just come out and say, and I say, uh, you know, I'm selling things and I'm trying to sell myself, whatever, it doesn't matter, I'm a narcissist, somewhat ironically, maybe it's a little true. Um, so I, I, I put that in the first thing, it had all these gunshots, it was like, John Remedios is a narcissist. Um, and, and when ToeJam came around recently, uh, I was talking to my friend Jason Kaplan, um, and... And I, I was like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if I got that on a shirt and I'll get you one too and we'll wear it and we'll be best buds and we'll high five. Now John's been working on the Shoot Shoot Mega Pack or SSMP. It's a collection of small games meant for a couple players. And the mechanics are all incredibly simple. The game he had on display had two buttons, thrust and shoot. The trick is if you shoot, so does everybody else. Same thing with thrust. When you move, everybody else moves. So this game is great at making people close to you pretty angry, which is kind of what John is looking for. What kind of inspired you to go and make this kind of um, simple local multiplayer game? Uh, okay, so um, a, cu- a couple things. One, I can't, I- I'm not an artist, uh, and I was really, really bent on, on making a game by myself. Um, and that, that included uh, like the music, the design, the programming, and, and the aesthetic, uh, the visual aesthetic. So I... I'm a big fan of graphic design, um, and I, I like I, I drew a lot of it from sort of like web development or, or just like print design, uh, and I, I tried really hard just to like get something that looked good to me. Um, so that that was the that was the first part, uh, and the second thing is I because I was the only person working on the game, I didn't want to have to deal with creating content. Uh, and, and doing like AI or anything like that. Um, because the original prototype was built in uh, for the Global Game Jam in January, so it was uh, just a span of three days. Um, and then really two weeks to flush it out and a couple more weeks to sort of build the game into its form right now. So it's, it's really, really, really early and really raw, but um, yeah, it's kind of like more like mandated design based on the circumstances. Uh, I have brought another, I brought another person on the team now. I'm working with Ryan Roth, uh, who's doing the audio. Um, and that's that's going really really well, but um, it the, the same sort of design sensibility is still there because I mean I'm I'm doing a large portion of the effort and it's a part time gig, so I uh, I need to conserve my energy when I can. So it's essentially this is out of necessity, is what you're saying, kind of the 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 way that your resources are right now. Yeah, I, I mean to to a degree, I don't want to like. Necessity is a weird thing to say because um, I also am like I'm trying to make a good game at the same time, right? It's not like I I need to make a simplistic game. It's like this is probably as, yeah I guess I guess this yeah I don't know maybe I'm trying to make excuses for myself. Um, it I just think it makes it makes a, a really like pure compelling experience with I mean very little development effort uh, on my part and I can really focus more on on the design and just like feel and polish of it a little bit more if I don't have to worry about a large amount of content creation or something for example yeah did you get did the idea start with local multiplayer and included yeah so the walking into the game jam I said to myself I'm going to make a local multiplayer game because I never done one before that's not entirely true I'd never finished one before uh, and I I kind of just went from that. I had no idea about anything else. I um, the the theme for the jam was something about like we don't see the world how they are. We see the world how we are, or something like that. Um, and and the game was originally supposed to be whenever it, like this, a similar sort of like 
two-dimensional shooter, like multi-directional shooter, uh, except every time you moved, everything else would, like, or, you know, you would create copies of yourself, and then the other players would have to try and find the real you and shoot you. Uh, and that didn't make any sense at all. That was crazy. Uh, so I kind of just, like, reduced that to its purest form. Um, and and had it was, it was originally like, oh, what happens if one person shoots and everybody like and everybody else shoots? Um, and I was talking to, uh, to Damien Summer. Actually, we were sitting in the same room for Global Game Jam. And I was like, hey, Damien, what if I make this game uh, with this one mechanic? And he's like, yeah, that's been done before. And I was like, oh, that's rad. Okay, so then I, because I, I, I guess I live my life just to impress Damien Summer. Um, I, that's not Most of us do. Yeah, that's not true at all. That uh, guy's a jerk. Um, I'm joking. I love you, Damien. Uh, no, but I, I was like, okay, well, I need to show him that I can come up with something better than that. Uh, so I just added the, the thrusting in. And that, I mean, I think that's actually really what defines the game in its current form, at least this one particular game. Like, I started working in 2009 on, like, Facebook games and downloads, stuff like that. And I'm not... And, and, like, I've done a bunch of mobile stuff, but it's not... I don't really dig it. And I guess that's kind of, like, what I'm actually trying to get out of this game is it's very much a game for, like, me as a kid, I guess. Um, and just, you know, hanging out with buds, playing a game. And um, then, I, like, then I was probably drinking a lot of soda and maybe eating some bugles. Uh, but you know now it's probably a lot, just really just a lot of beer, uh, and and I um, I don't know I kind of really wanted to recapture that sort of sorry that sort of um, I don't know that that closeness that you can kind of get when you're interacting with other people. Uh, but yeah, any any of those any like Mortal Kombat played a lot of Mortal Kombat as a kid, I guess. Um, <laughs> in any case, uh, it you you only have one game put together right now um what stages are the other um three games in right now at, at this moment uh, everything is in a very early prototype phase right now um i the reason they're not here is because i don't i don't feel like they're ready to be shown yet uh so i like okay uh, here here's some exclusive developer secret stuff um yeah, so one of the, the games I'm working on is is or one of the yeah one of the games I'm working on is uh, a similar thing where it's again a multi-directional shooter except there's only one bullet so it's sort of like a dodgeball game effectively um, and you have to like fly to the center and and get to it um, and shoot at each other but it's still like it's not it's not feeling really good right now um, so I've kind of put that to the side and I'll evaluate it later uh, another one which is like super super rough is uh, the game goes through cycles um, so. There are four players, it goes through four cycles, and on any given cycle, uh, only that player can shoot, and everyone else has to avoid it, so it's sort of like a cat and mouse game. Um, I've been thinking about one, and I haven't even started this, developing this one yet, uh, where the, the controls randomize um, throughout the course of the game, and you need to kind of adjust how you play as it goes. I don't know if that's actually something I'm looking forward to. Um, I, I don't know. I'm I'm trying to f- figure out exactly like what the, what exactly the common thread is between all of them. Is it just the shooting or is it the the player interaction? Um, and I I won't really know until I play test it enough. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Hey. Thank thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. John Remedios is a game designer based in Toronto. He is still working on SSMP. He is also not a narcissist. So let's get back to the present day. We went down to Toryuken this week. It's Toronto's biggest fighting game tournament, featuring Street Fighter, Tekken, and Marvel vs. Capcom. Okay! 
E.G. just did one goes to grand finals. Next up, Emperor Renovo versus MC Squared 2. Give him up. Let's go, guys. But that doesn't mean it's that it's all huge, especially compared to American tournaments. Sure, it draws a few hundred locals, but thousands come from around the world to the Evolution tournament in Las Vegas. So I caught Torican organizer Russell Ordona in between matches and asked him about the role of small tournaments like this. What goes into organizing a tournament like this? Uh, a lot of things. You need a good team. You need a good venue. The way the future is right now, internet is really important for streaming, so you need a good upload. Not a lot of venues have good internet in Toronto. So yeah, a lot of things. A lot of, a great team. Great team would probably be the best answer. For a, for a slightly smaller tournament like this, how do you attract kind of top players? Uh, top players, we, we try to attract them by bringing uh, international players like Justin Wong, K-Brad, EMP Crazy Joe, Ray Ray. So I guess, yeah, t- trying, to, uh, trying to bring international players would be the best draw that I can give. And, and bringing in those international players, how do you kind of bring them in? I know Justin told me yesterday that you guys, you, you and him have known each other a long time. How do you, is that sort of just general, just the, like fighting game community connections? Yeah, it's really about friendship and relationships. So all together, I've known him for a few years and I asked him like, hey, can you come to Toronto? And I said, yeah, sure. So it's just, it's just one of those things like, you know, you, there's really is camaraderie between the FGC. So, I mean, if he can't make it, he will tell me. If he can't make it, like, hey, I would love to go to Toronto, Canada. Because we always treat them the nicest way possible. What, what is it about, the, like, what, what makes Toronto's uh, community special or unique? Uh, um, <laughs> it's always fun to bring them together because you always see the right amount of uh, reaction when either they win or they lose. And then they get uh, a sense of rivalry with the people that they play. So it, it's basically like, it's unique in a way where rivalry exists between friends because it's a I mean it's a really compared to some communities for a, for, a city, for a city as large as we have it's a little bit smaller than some and it, it, do you find that that kind of helps bring that camaraderie together yeah definitely the, the numbers compared to US is definitely really small but again with, we're pulling in 300 400 in our big tournaments which is a pretty good for Toronto Canada I'm happy about those numbers I will never be able to compete with US tournaments but 400 and 300 to 400 in Canada is a good number. And and bringing them together, Montreal, Ottawa, Niagara even, comes in and just try to prove themselves to be the best. And I mean, there's even, like you mentioned just now on stage, there's also the Buffalo contingent. Yeah, so yeah, Buffalo as well. I'm, I have great relationship with the Buffalo Tekken players. So they, I just I just ask, again, I just ask people if they can come and they say yes or no. So. What, what, is the, what is the toughest part about putting this all together and what makes it worth it for you? Uh, the toughest part is bringing all the equipment inside and <laughs> getting the right team, basically, right? You have to get like the right volunteers. You have to trust the people that you work with because if you can't leave them alone, you shouldn't be working with them. So trust is really important for something like this. Uh, I mean, I'm going to lose my voice at the end of the day. That's definitely for sure. So it, it's, it's always fun. It's, the, the, the rewarding part of it is I can bring everybody together in one room and compete it's it's just it's it's calming to know that you know somebody is doing that because nobody else will to be honest with you nobody's gonna go through all of this and they're always appreciated appreciative with that with the things that i do and bringing an event like this is, is one of them 
still, Toriyuken draws a couple big names. One of them is Justin Wong, one of North America's best Street Fighter, Marvel vs. Capcom, and Killer Instinct players. Justin placed top three across six games at Toriyuken this year, and he took first place in most. Which is actually bonkers, because I can barely play one game poorly, let alone six at a high competitive level. But... Evolution is the International Fighting Game Championships, and it's less than a month away. We chatted with Justin about why he was in Toronto. And also, if he was worried about the Japanese gods, the five legendary Street Fighter players from Japan who will be at EVO. They've already had a few months playing Ultra Street Fighter 4 over all of their American competitors. Not every scene has like a lot of people compared to like California or New York. So, um, Russell, I knew him, I know him for like a really long time, since maybe the early 2000s. So, you know, he asked me to come out, and I like coming out to the Toryuken events. Um, so pretty much just want to come here, and maybe hopefully the scene gets more motivated to to be more players, and then, the, then this major will have more players, and then it will fly in more other players that are top-level players in America or maybe, like, Asia or Europe. Are there, I mean, this is, I think, the third Toryuken, right? Uh, how have you noticed there being any, you know, Toronto like local players getting better? Anybody you've kind of noted, it's, or is just the general scene you've kind of noticed something? I think the general scene is actually um, getting a lot better. Like when I was playing at the team term yesterday at the ANC, like I can notice that like I'll, you know, like I seen them two years ago, and I noticed that oh, you know, they are actually stepping their game up. So pretty much it's just a matter of. If they want to step out of their shell, like leaving Toronto and going to a tournament and just trying to see what they have against other players around the U.S. or other parts of Canada. Um, so, I mean, with Evo, I guess, a month or so away, is there anything you personally are looking to improve about your game? Yeah, pretty much um, Evo is really close and I've just been on the road for like the last like couple of months, just nonstop. So I haven't been really home and practicing in training mode or trying to find like new setups or finding new strategies like I just been going tournament to tournament to tournament so like um, after UFGT which is next week I'll be home for like a month which is pretty darn good and I'll get to practice a lot and hopefully I can find out some new stuff before evolution comes around does when it comes to, I mean, Street Fighter specifically, Street Fighter specifically does Ultra coming coming out kind of throw a wrench in that regimen? Um, yeah, I mean, like the thing is, it's not like it's the first time this happened. Like um, when AE was announced, it was the same concept, only one month before Evo, and you know, pretty much still like we still hold on our own. Latif got second, and uh, Fudo got first. So hopefully, um, we can just do the same or even win Evo this year for Street Fighter, but. In the end, I still think it's probably a little hard, but since the arcade and console bill seems like it's not the same, so it looks like it's very even at, at the same time. And with, I, I think I just heard that the you know five really the five gods you know the, the Japanese like the best players are, are coming over. Does them having that extra practice give anything to them? Um, I think. Well, the thing is, the game drastically changed a lot, so. Probably the one that stands out the most is probably uh, Daigo because he plays Ryu. He doesn't really play a Vortex character. Like uh, Takeo uses Akuma, which is a completely different character now. Um, Heitani uses Makoto, but she's better, but Delay Geta might mess up with his timing. Um, Nuki just been out the scene for a long time, but he's been playing a lot of like Chun Li lately, and you know that's pretty much like his style. So I think he's like gonna be like the dark horse of the of the five gods. And then you have uh, Sako, who's pretty much just a combo master. 
So I could see you could, a lot of evil Ryu from him mainly for the tournament. So for you personally, what's it like balancing so many games? You, you, you play a lot of fighting games, and most people, I think, tend, tend to specialize in one or two. And I, I know you play at least three or four sometimes. What is it like balancing all those games and kind of keeping competitive in all of them? Um, well, the thing is, AE, Marvel, and KI are, like, my three games that, like, I prefer the most. So, like, other games, like, that doesn't get as much love. I, I just like playing them, but I don't really practice them so much. It's pretty much using my fundamentals to hopefully get my way through the whole tournament. But, um, you know, like, like every game has... Everybody has a different taste of fighting game, and I think every scene deserves some love. So, pretty much, I just try to play as many games as I can, even if like, like I won't enter like a turn, like for example, a game that I'm not familiar at at all. Like I would not enter a tournament, but like if I know if I know like the basics and everything, then I'll definitely enter. Cordona is the founder of Toronto Top Tiers and the organizer of Toriuken, Toronto's annual fighting games tournament. You can find him at Twitter, at Neo Russell, or check out what's happening on Toronto's fighting game community at torontotoptiers.com. Justin Wong is a fighting game player sponsored by Evil Geniuses. You can probably find him at whatever major tournament is happening this weekend, or follow him on Twitter at jwong with three Gs. So we're another week into our theme of localization. Last week, we heard from Colin Williamson on translating Final Fantasy games. Well, when when we started uh, remaking uh, the FF stuff, uh, we were just we 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 had uh, terms. You know, it, there's so many terms that are you know uh, shared across all of the games, and we're like, okay, it's time to sit down and you know just go through and figure out you know what's going to be what. But professionals aren't the only one who translate games. There's a whole field of fan translations. People online have been localizing video games for decades. If it's clear that a game isn't going to get translated, fans step in. These games are often underdogs. Games never came out in English, and the publishers have long forgotten. Or at least that's how Steve Demeter sees it. Uh, I love the underdog. I love the dark horse. I love the uh, the forgotten. The, uh, the, the what if, you know, the... Um, I'm always looking at director's cuts of films. I'm always looking at, you know, alternate histories. You know, it's like that that really piqued my interest. And, and there's a lot of really good stuff in there. The first game Steve ever translated was Final Fantasy II. This was back when it was known online as Demiforce. Now, we have pointed out numerous times that Final Fantasy II was a hunk of junk. It has a broken combat system, and the plot at best was boring. But Steve saw more in that game, and at the time, translating himself was the only way to play it. Man, I think it was back in the mid to late 90s. Emulators were just starting to come out. You know, we were starting to realize that there were more games out there than, like, Nintendo Power had, like, let us on in our childhoods. I decided to start, you know, investigating, like... Final Fantasy V, Final Fantasy II. Um, a buddy of mine who went by the nickname Hazama, he went ahead and was trying a Final Fantasy V translation. And this is way before, like, uh, the official one that was done. RPGE, I think, did it. Uh, this is 
a long, long time ago. I was like, okay, he's doing that. Let me do Final Fantasy II for the Nintendo. And that was, I think, my first translation. I think it was released in 98. And from there, it was just like, it was fun. It was like a little community of people I had never met before, all like, you know, IRC-based message boards. And I was like in college, and it was just a fun thing to do for a while. Now, this is way back when uh, they have... Final Fantasy II had never seen the light of day in the United States. We'd got, they'd gotten uh, Final Fantasy One, and then Final Fantasy Four was Final Fantasy Two. It was just this junky little, you know, all sprites were reused from the first one. It was like I'm a big, you know, uh, I have a big, you know, soft spot in my heart for like the underdog and and games which are you know not seen. Uh, I was like, let's try this one. So. You know, my, my degree's in Japanese. I never went to college for um, programming. So I, I cut my teeth with programming on these on these translations. I mean, I had, you know, I learned assembly first, which is, the, I guess, kind of the old school way to go about it. Um, you know, learning hexadecimal and then, uh, you know, how to, how to read, uh, you know, in a hex editor and having to differentiate opcodes from a, from a pointer table. Um, it's, it was kind of like detective work. I'll say that in lieu of the word hacking. Cause I think hacking has kind of reached a point where it's, it's definitely become kind of bastardized these days, but I really liked it cause you know, it, it's, it was a point where you, you dig into these, into these games and you're, and you realize after, after a while that you're at a point where nobody had ever intended for you to be. And then of course you realize that it's kind of like, you know, seeing through the matrix where everything else is like, you know, the jeans you wear, the TV you watch, everything has been put there for you. But this was just somewhere that nobody intended me to be. And it was kind of a, I guess, I guess kind of a maturation point for me. I really liked it. What were the main challenges in working with, uh, at least, uh, that era of super Nintendo and Nintendo games? It was the ROM expansion. You had like, it was always the expansion. It was always like, you know, you, um, in Japanese, you have uh, each sil- each uh, character is either a word or a syllable. And and by its very definition, that takes a lot less space, character for character, to get, you know, your mina across versus like English where it's like, you know, one character per word or per, uh, per, per letter. So we'd always been, you know... Uh, screwing around with, you know, how can we how can we condense all this meaning in the script into this amount of space? Um, and then you get into, you know, editing and and poeticism and, and really trying to get the most out of what you've, you know, what, what you have. But I really gained a lot of respect for, for Nintendo for, for really getting what they could out of, of those really old games. His most creatively successful work, however was Radical Dreamers. Radical Dreamers is a non-canon sequel to Chrono Trigger. Chrono Trigger is probably one of the greatest role-playing games of all time. It was one of the last games for the Super Nintendo, but it was a lot of fun and had a t- kind of a fun time travel story that mostly made sense. Which makes Radical Dreamers so strange. Radical Dreamers is bad. It doesn't make a lot of sense, even in Japanese. It wasn't even a role-playing game. It was a visual novel that wrapped up one dangling plot thread from the original game. And it was a game that time travel felt like nonsense. The creator, Masato Kato, called it a flop. Eventually, they made another sequel, Chrono Cross, to wrap up that story, and the game, at least in the U.S., was almost forgotten. Which, of course, made Radical Dreamers all the more appealing to Steve. I'm a big fan of uh, 
Masato Kato. Uh, he directed Scenario for, for Chrono Trigger, Radical Dreamers, uh, and then went on into, I think he went into Xenogears. And then, uh, or no, I think it was somebody else. But, I, you know, regardless, a number of really good guys, you know, went from, you know, that 8-bit era where it was kind of like, let's just see what we can do in 256K and then Super Nintendo Renaissance and then, like, you know, PlayStation. And that was like a total linear curve of, of artistic ability. And that was that sweet spot where it was just starting to cross over from 16-bit into 32-bit. So you're starting to see stories that had really, 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 you know, depth. And they were developing their own abilities as as artists. And I was like, I have to translate this. This is so cool. And it's all text. You know, there's an opportunity here to really tell a story uninhibited with, with you know, embellishments. I mean, whenever have you seen a Squaresoft game that wasn't over the top with its visuals, right? Here they are trying to do something with just words, and I thought that was so cool. And, and you know, I'm a Chrono Trigger nut, so I had to do it. I was unemployed at that time. And uh, my boyfriend was supporting me. And I went and I spent eight months. And all I did was just translate the game. <laughs> I'm looking back. I'm like, how the hell did that happen? How did I have the time to do that much? But, um, oh, it was amazing. It was, it, was, it was difficult. And I had some really good guys helping me. And, uh, you know, a lot of it was was me learning how to really read this kind of archaic, poetic Japanese. But, uh, yeah, I had to go over it a lot. But, I mean, even more than that was the editing because they had kind of screwed up the game uh, during the running of it. Like, you know, if you look at the actual Japanese game, there are hallways which, you know, you should turn right to get to the store, but they had it listed as you'll turn left to go here. So I kind of had to really reinvent it. Uh, with obvious respect to the original. So you were kind of even, you were fixing the game to some extent. I would would say fix is a a strong term, but uh, it'd need a little bit of TLC. With you called this uh, this translation um, in an interview with One Up, your most creatively successful. Um, Why is that? Just the amount of editing, just the sheer amount of text. I think it was a meg of, of text in Notepad which I think was like, I think it's 70,000 70, lines of, of text. And, you know, it's just like you're sitting there and you, you have your phase where you just translate it all and you get, you know, these sentences which just don't flow as words at all. And then you go over it and you kind of make it work. And then you're at the final point where you're really editing it and adding, you know, the, the, the cadence to the words. And, I mean, it was, it was definitely a learning experience for me. Um, I felt that I improved in my writing after that, and it was just i don't want to i don't want to compare myself to writing a book because I didn't write it, but I definitely um, respected the editing process for doing that and I really you know gained interest in, in in words in general. I went back and I read Shakespeare just in terms of how things flow and how to make things sound and I really enjoyed it so Working on these translations comes with a sharp price, though. Radical Dreamers on its own was 70,000 lines of text. And Steve worked on these games during university and spent more time in his translations than he did on schoolwork. <laughs> I feel bad about this because I'm, I'm not a role model in this sense. Uh, I definitely did my hobbies a lot more than I should have you know, tried in college, but I don't, I don't recommend that. I haven't looked back. Um, you know, I think I probably, you know, college for me was an experiment in, in being able to do what I wanted. You know, I was very lucky enough to have parents that put me through it, and I probably could have tried harder. 
Um, but you know, things work out for the best, but I don't, I don't advocate that way of doing it at all. Um, when, when it comes down to it, do you think that it was worth it to have spent all your time on these games as opposed to Absol- absolutely. I mean, like I say, it was kind of a waste of money, but the fact that I had exercised my ability to follow my passion and find my passion, um, that alone, just in terms of finding myself, was absolutely worth it. Steve Demeter was a fan translator, but now he's the head of Demiforce Games. His upcoming game is a sequel to Trism. We'll hear more from him next week. And that's all for this week. I'm producer Armin Igvali. And I'm featured editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of... Mayor Shepard. Reagan Burns. John Remedios. Russell Ordona. Justin Long. And... Steve Demeter. For extended versions of the interviews you've just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca. We're available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know what we're doing and more people can find the show. But leave us a positive review, because if you leave us a negative review, we'll add a connect to whatever game system you have and draw an extra 10 billion kilowatts of power. We're usually there at the Scope of Ryerson every Saturday at 1 p.m., and we run every Monday and Thursday also at 1 p.m. How convenient. And we update the website every Sunday. You can find us on Twitter at Built2Play and me personally at Florcon. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen, and we're going to drag you to Chuck E. Cheese. We're going to drag you to Chuck E. Cheese, and you're going to like it, dang it. Thank you so much for listening.